bell has rung, we'll give folks just another minute or so. You know, we're all in, uh, the two adult classes are in here uh, this evening. Andy is uh, still away. Uh, he will be back by Sunday. Everybody's asked me, when is he coming back? He preaches Sunday. So before then, I'm assuming. Um, but as everybody is coming in, uh, just uh, want to remind everyone that we are going through this How We Got the Bible class. Uh, and um, in both the uh, auditorium and in the fellowship hall. And it is a class um, that is classically part of uh, Christian evidences, or sometimes you'll hear the word apologetics. Um, and uh, this is uh, one of the, if you call them doors, uh, one of the, the three or four doors in Christian apologetics that people uh, will study. We'll talk about that as we uh, introduce, like I said, just giving folks uh, another minute or two to come in and find their seat. You'll notice that uh, uh, I wanted to be fancy tonight and use colored paper. Actually, I just hit print, and then when it came out, it was all different colors uh, for the notes, if you like to take notes. So there's a lot of green and purple, and uh, so if you want one or the other, pick your favorite color. I didn't want to throw them away and print them all over again. Uh, but uh, that's what happened, so um, that's, uh, that's what we're using tonight. If you really do necessarily need a white piece of paper, I can print one out for you later or email it to you uh, for the notes that you do take. <clears throat> Just one more minute as folks get situated. Yes, sir. <laughs> if you were able to uh, take uh, Keith Nadal up on his offer, be sure to tell him thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, until you've worked off some calories. Uh, let's have a prayer. Our God in heaven, we are thankful to you for blessing us with the time midweek to be able to assemble as your people, to be able to study things concerning your word, to be able to dig into scripture, uh, especially, uh, Father, those things that concern uh, how we uh, have this book that's in front of us. Thank you, God, for blessing us uh, with your word. Thank you, God, for the uh, intricate nature and yet uh, the simple nature in which uh, uh, your word has come to us this day. We ask God that you would help us to defend your word from the attacks of people that are uh, against you and against your son. God, we ask that you would please bless us tonight as we study. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. A couple of weeks ago, Andy and I were discussing the material that we're going through in this class, um, and we discussed uh, a, a portion of the class uh, that we're going to be talking about tonight, but it's a portion of the class that um, can, uh, well, it can feel dull for two reasons. Number one, weeding through all of the information from uh, the 17 and 1800s where 
a lot of these ideas initially came from is just a tedious process, especially when you're reading stuff that was translated from German into English. And so just by its very nature that way, it can feel tedious and frustrating. The other reason is that we're going to be analyzing and looking, uh, we're going to be looking at certain ideas, naturalistic ideas of scripture and explaining why they're incorrect. But you'll get frustrated just by looking at these things that are attacks on what is God's word. As I mentioned right before uh, our prayer, uh, Christian evidences can be divided up into various rooms. You have uh, room number one, uh, is it possible to know truth? And to ask the question really is to answer it because there's only three answers. You can say no. Well, if you say no, you can't know truth. You're at least saying that you can know at least one truth, that you don't know truth, which means you can know a second truth, that you know that you know that you don't know truth, and then it goes on into infinity. The second answer is maybe, which means you at least know that as well. Some will say, well, I don't know. Well, then you can know that as well. And then the third answer, the one that everybody in the world lives by, is yes, we can know truth. We can know that truth exists and we can know what truth is. We can know uh, that there is a Bible in front of me. We can know that uh, there's a Bible in front of you. There's some things that we know just by their very nature. We can know that there is no such thing as a four-sided triangle. You don't even have to go prove it. By its nature, there is no such thing as a four-sided triangle. That's room number one. Room number two is God's existence. Does God exist? Can we know? You see why that's door number one. Can we know that God exists? Yes. And I'm sure that there's been tons of studies done here on various occasions, which uh, I'm sure we'll have many more. But yes, we can know that God exists. The third room, which is the room that we're in right now, is about how we got, uh, uh, well, technically the third room uh, is how we got the Bible. Some will switch the third and fourth room, but the fourth room is, did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Is Jesus the Son of God? Because that's what the resurrection answers. Like I said, we're in this third room on how we got the Bible. We've been going over this class. Uh, what happens? What happens when people reject the biblical model for inspiration and canonization? These are a couple of words that we've discussed in previous classes. But what happens when people reject that biblical model? Remember, we've talked about this, uh, uh, this biblical model where just reading through Scripture, uh, we see that when God spoke, He would speak in times past through the prophets, and then in these last days has spoken to us by His Son. God spoke, and the prophets wrote down what God told them to write down. And you have again and again and again and again in Scripture this idea, God spoke, God spoke, God spoke. You have this massive focus. And last week we looked at, um, in both classes, the authorship of the first five books of Scripture. Scripture. 
and the canonization, the fact that they are part of God's inspired word because they hold all of those things that would need to be inspired. It has all of those characteristics. So we're backing up just a little bit and looking at this more broadly. And as I said, Andy and I discussed this. It'd be easier just to have one big class on it than to teach two technical classes on it. So we uh, moved around how we were going to do this. And uh, I drew the short straw, so to speak. Um, But uh, when we look at inspiration, the subject of inspiration there are basically uh, three views. There's, there's a ton of views, but there's three that you can categorize it into. I like big pocket categories. You've got the view that Scripture is partially inspired. Uh, three particular views underneath this. Some would say that the concepts of Scripture are inspired. The ideas of Scripture are inspired. Um, but uh, not necessarily anything else. And then uh, whoever is espousing this will then tell you the things that they believe are not scripture. Uh, usually it would be a historical detail that they disagree with or a science, scientific detail that they disagree with or something like that. Um, other ideas in this partially is, well, only those things that are spiritual in nature are inspired. And again, then they'll have to define exactly what is spiritual and what's not, and then what do you do with the things that are a mix? And then there's some who will be fractional in their inspiration idea, that they will break up into chunks various sections of Scripture and say, well, this is inspired, but this isn't, and then this is inspired, but this isn't. And it's really based on their own choices, Uh, There's no uh, similarity between people who have these ideas as to what should be and shouldn't be considered inspired. So that's people who believe that it's partially inspired. On the other side, you have people who would just totally say it's not inspired. The naturalist approach Uh, that there is nothing in Scripture that's inspired, and the only way we could say it's inspired is in a similar way that somebody would be inspired to write a song or paint something. They just felt an emotion and did it. Um, But other than that, it's just a pure human document. Those are the uh, ideas, by the way, that we're going to be looking at in particular tonight, three of them, um, in this idea of naturalist, um, uh, in this category of inspiration. The third is fully inspired. And there's two basic views in this view of full inspiration. First, there's the view of mechanical dictation. Like I said, some of this, you're just kind of walking through the weeds. Mechanical dictation. uh, uh, That the people who wrote scripture were basically glorified typewriters. They were possessed to write down exactly everything as it was, and that is it, and they were incredibly robotic about it, and there is nothing about that individual in the writing. That view really doesn't have a whole lot of folks who hold to it. There'd be more on the partially inspired and certainly more on the naturalist, uh, naturalistic inspired, but there are some people who will hold to the mechanical dictation view. 
And I saved this view for last because we'll talk about it. It's the verbal plenary inspiration view. Raise your hand if you've heard that phrase before. Verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, all the, and I know, you know, if you went to Bible school, I saw Carrie's hand go up for a second. I know he's heard that, and several of you probably watching an Apologetics Press video or something like that has heard the phrase verbal plenary inspiration. What is verbal plenary inspiration? Essentially, and I'll give an example of this, but essentially God's Word was mediated through the lives and the personalities of the writers and genre of liter literature through which that they wrote, through which they wrote. Now, I'll break this down for a moment. God's Word was mediated through the lives and personalities uh, of the writers. When you read a book like Luke, you're going to find more medical terms because of Luke's background. When you read about scribes who wrote, like Ezra, you're going to see terms that they would have been familiar with. They wrote based on their background. Does that get rid of inspiration in any way? No. Uh, in fact, when we use this phrase verbal plenary inspiration, verbal simply means words, Plenary means full or complete, and inspiration, we've already talked about, means God breathed. Um, but let me give you an example how we know that uh, this is the case, and this is, again, opposed to the mechanical dictation view. Uh, open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, and begin reading with me in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Look down at verse 17. We have this picture of the exalted Christ. And then in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are about to take place after this, or those that are to take place after this. And as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars, and the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, and then, verse 8, to the church in Smyrna, write. And then in uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse uh, 12, to the angel in the church of Pergamum, write. Guess what? You're going to keep reading that. Why would Jesus need to say that if he was just this possessed typewriter? 
Why would Jesus tell John, write the things that you see, if it was such the case that he had no control whatsoever? But God still had full control over what was going to be written. God made sure that the words were the words that he wanted, and it is fully inspired. That's what we mean by full inspiration. It takes into account genre. When we read the book of Proverbs, we're not going to interpret it and look at it the exact same way as when we look at the book of Acts. When we read the Psalms, we're not going to read it in the same way as we would read the book of Luke. This is the biblical definition. Uh, when we talk about inspiration, this is the big, long biblical definition of inspiration. With that in mind, let's talk about the naturalist view, uh, naturalist view. There's a few key concepts underneath the naturalist view uh, that um, help us in understanding where they're coming from and also, honestly, to help us understand how to answer this view. Uh, number one, uh, on the naturalist view, there is a foundation that they will not leave. Supernatural events do not occur. That is foundation number one. To get to where they're going, they will not accept anything else. Number two, just a historical reference, and this will help especially you history folks start putting it into uh, uh, the concepts of the day, but it was popularized during the 1700s all the way up to the uh, early 1900s, mid-1900s, it shifted a little bit. What was going on in the 17 and 1800s in particular? What's that? Wars. French Revolution. Yeah. Anybody know what this period between the 1700s and 1800s is called? The Enlightenment period. Why was it called the Enlightenment period? Was it because LEDs were invented? Thank you. That was terrible. Why was it called the Enlightenment period? This is the time in history where people are going from... Where, what period was before that? The Middle Ages, mid medieval, the Dark Ages sometimes. They're coming out of that and going into the Enlightenment. What are some of the events that made that possible, by the way, in history? Gutenberg, the printing press. More and more people can read. More and more people can study. And there was a lot of good things that came of it. Specifically, the first full book printed on the printing press, the Bible. The Bible. And you have all of this stuff taking place. Now, printing press again before this, but reaching a worldwide audience in, during the 17 and 1800s and into the 1900s. And you have this enlightenment period, but also what was happening during this enlightenment period, especially in places like Germany, it was a time of naturalism. A time that would be characterized by eventually modernism. A time that was characterized by rational 
ism. And not rationalism in the way that we think because we all want to be rational, but this was this idea that everything had to have an explanation that had a natural and human cause. Number three, this was something else that was gaining in popularity at this time. Everything, this was a new concept in science some 50, 100 years before um, these other theories, um, but the evolutionary theory started to really gain traction and people started to take the framework that they used for evolution, small, tiny changes over time, and shift it and put it into not just biology, which was bad enough, um, but ethics, religion, history, any kind of thing they could try to apply this to that involved study, they wanted to try to apply the evolutionary framework. Small changes over time to get to where we are now. These ideas and this naturalistic view are accepted today by most liberal scholars. Uh, when you start looking at different books to get, uh, you'll see words like critical. That's not necessarily a bad word, but you need to pay attention when you see it. Um, when you start seeing those kinds of words and you start reading about these folks and their basic belief systems, you're going to start seeing these naturalistic tendencies come up. But these uh, uh, focuses here give you a good understanding of the naturalist view. Now, here's the thing. If you believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, which is what we've been teaching and it's what we talked about just a moment ago, you're in the minority of the religious world. Not just the world overall with unbelievers, but the religious world in general. You're in the minority. Now, honestly, that shouldn't be surprising. We're in the minority on several things. Instrumental music, the gospel plan of salvation, the role and purpose of the church. So it's not surprising that we're going to be in the minority on the Bible. By the way, this is important because these ideas that we're going to discuss tonight more and more people in the U.S. are referring to themselves as nuns, not in the Catholic sense, but unchurched. No religious affiliation. They have none that uh, they would tie themselves to. And because of that, there's a massive, massive, massive lack of an understanding of Scripture. They don't understand how the Bible is even set up when they open it. And these three ideas are all that they have heard. And when they start Googling, because that's what everybody does now, the inspiration of Scripture, these are the ideas that are going to come up more often than not. First, we'll talk about the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis, uh, Jul, uh, Julius Wellhausen is who popularized this. He lived in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, in 1883 is when really he finished uh, the big bulk of his work on the documentary, what he calls the documentary hypothesis. 
basically Genesis through Joshua are not written by Moses and then Joshua. That's his basic theory. And again, he is going to live during this time where he has those suppositions, those presuppositions, anti-supernatural uh, biases. There's nothing that is supernatural. Um, uh, it has to be in this evolutionary framework. Uh, all of these kinds of things. There has to be a human explanation. And so what happens if you deny the biblical explanation of Scripture? Well, you come up with something like the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis uh, is basically the idea that we'll talk about the first five books of Moses. Yes, Joshua is included in this, um, but first five books of Moses uh, originally were not written by Moses. And he has this suggestion that there were different independent documents that were pulled together and pieced together and sewn together like some sort of Frankenstein monster to come up with the Pentateuch, 900 A.D. to 400, uh, sorry, B.C. to 400 B.C. Uh, is the time frame in which he would say this takes place. By the way, anybody just off the top of their head remember about the time uh, we would say uh, Moses lived? You don't even have to do Moses. How about the time in which David reigned? About 1,000. We're already 100 years after David when some of this process supposedly starts, which means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. He's ignoring all of that, and he's trying to push that the Pentateuch comes after those things. Now, um, the first thing that comes up is what he calls document J, which you'll notice there's some tie-ins here. This stands for Jehovah or y Yahweh. Um, this is the first document. And so when you see pieces, when you see scriptures that uh, use the, um, the term Jehovah, well, that's from this document J. Because there's another word, Elohim, El, that's used um, often in Scripture, El, and it's tied with various other forms. Uh, and they'll say, he'll say, well, see, this is a different way that people would refer to God, so it has to be a different document. But this J document uh, comes in about 850 B.C. because Judah would refer to God with that divine name, Yahweh, um, or Jehovah, the Lord, in our English translations. Um, now, the E document, this Elohim document, supposedly was written about 750 uh, B.C. Uh, as an alternative account to J. Um, and it uses a different word, again, Elohim, and avoids various other terms. Uh, and then, sometime after the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, 722 B.C., uh, J and E would have been fused together into a combination, this new document uh, talking about the theological struggles that they're going 
to, to be under and the convictions they had at that time. And then in 650 D, uh, BC, you have another document called D, um, which was really focusing on um, the purity of, of worship. This is, again, what he's saying about this. Um, and this uh, uh, focus brings forth worship only to God. The suggestion is before this, they were um, uh, fine with worshiping multiple gods um, because in the evolutionary view of religion, you go from multiple gods to a single god. Now, incidentally, when you study the history of religion in the world, you go from a single god, and when you study the Bible, <laughs> which is historical, you go from a single god to people going away and going to many gods, but they ignore history. Um, in fact, he was called out in his time for ignoring history while he was developing his hypothesis, this man Julius Wellhausen. Um, so you have this J-E, and then you have this next document together, and then eventually it was fused uh, together in uh, about 587, uh, uh, after 587, when Jerusalem would fall to the Babylon, uh, Babylonians. But you know what? We need to get the priestly information there. So things like Leviticus and stuff like that, all of that came now after the Babylonian captivity. And then eventually that was all pushed together and now you have the Torah. That is documentary hypothesis. We're going to talk about this and the two others and, and how to just kind of analyze and ask some questions about them here at the end. Um, but let's keep going. Another portion of scripture which is highly criticized by uh, um, naturalists, Isaiah. We would affirm that Isaiah is written by Isaiah because that's what Isaiah says. That's what the New Testament writers say. That's what Jesus says. That's what the early church fathers say. That's what historians would say up until 17, 1800s. And then suddenly they're enlightened, and it can't be this way. And the reason mainly that you'll see is because there are things that take place and things that are said in Isaiah who lived during Hezekiah's time, right? That was looking forward to events in the future over a hundred years after his death. Verse, uh, chapters 40 through 66 are considered some of the highest and loftiest and best written literature, period. So they say it couldn't, it couldn't have been written by the same guy who wrote 1 through 39 because it's, it's different. Has anybody ever had to send a letter to the IRS? Has anybody ever written a love letter to their spouse? Did you use different language because of different contexts? Is it possible to write about different things that are going on and have different language involved in them? Well, not according to this theory. And because of certain particular events, anybody know of the major event uh, that, that, they, that, that, that naturalists do not like that takes place in uh, the book of Isaiah, which then they will push it to after, the, uh, after returning from Babylonian captivity. There's a man by the name of Cyrus 
who was written about who would release the Jews from captivity. This was written, like I said, over a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. And yet he's called Cyrus. That's supernatural knowledge. Can't have that. So obviously there must have been a second Isaiah, Deutero-Isaiah. Others have come in and said, wait a second. We need to break this up a little bit more because that doesn't make enough sense. So there was another Isaiah called Tritio, or the third Isaiah, and he wrote a different portion of Isaiah. And when you start looking at these suggestions, again, there's not going to be an um, agreed form on which parts are which because now they're going to start stuffing and changing some of these and putting some of 40 through 66 and some of the first uh, uh, Isaiah, and then some in the third Isaiah, and then some in the second, and mix it all up. And they'll say all these things about how it couldn't have happened this way because it's too accurate. And that's kind of the point that we're making is that's why we should accept it. Because it's so accurate. And so they have this idea that there are three different writers of Isaiah. Some have even gone so far as to say, well, there was a school of scribes uh, or of prophets uh, that would follow Isaiah and listen to him and write down. And then for years and years, and the reason you don't read about them in history is because they were just quiet, they were unassuming, but they would formulate and figure out all these things and then attach Isaiah's name to it. That's the supposed idea of uh, the uh, um, authorship of Isaiah. Then you have the gospel accounts. Let's move into the Old Testament real quickly, or sorry, in the New Testament real quickly. Um, some people you have, may have heard of something called the synoptic problem. Does that sound familiar? Anybody hear the synoptic problem? It's the synoptic problem of Scripture. Uh, what are the synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke. Because John has a lot of different material in it, Matthew, Mark, Luke have a lot of the same material in it. Now, when you start to really break it down, that's only slightly true. There's difference between all of them. But with the synoptic problem, Mark is the shorter, simpler gospel. And so everything else must evolve from Mark. This is the teaching of these naturalists. Remember, it all comes from this basic evolutionary idea to push evolution into all sorts of different areas of life. It comes from this naturalist idea that it has to be this way by humans, by man. It can't be God. And so Mark, it's the simplest gospel. And then Luke, he must have copied Mark. And Matthew must have copied Mark. Well, how do you explain the differences then? Oh, well, there's another document called Q. And this is the document that they uh, both copied from, those things that are not. No, I'm not talking about the Star Trek character, unfortunately. Um, no, this is a document that, that they would have had access to in order to get the things that Mark doesn't include. So they say, this is how we got Matthew, Mark, uh, and Luke, but it all stemmed from Mark because it's the simpler. And evolution, it goes from simple to convoluted, I mean complex. Um, that's, uh, that's what this basic idea is. 
And so you have the life of Jesus, yes, beginning 4 B.C., because of a math problem that happened in history. You can read about that. Um, and then you have what they would say, okay, oral and written traditions um, after Jesus' death. And that goes all the way to A.D. 50, where you have the Gospel of Q. Um, some have tried to tie the Gospel of Thomas, that is some 250 years after this, by the way, all the way back to the, this Q document. They don't call it the Gospel of Q. They just call it Q. And then you have Mark written in the 70s, and then Matthew and Luke in the mid-80s, and then finally John in 95, but, you know, John, they don't care about John because John wrote in 95. By the way, this goes against um, most uh, uh, conservative scholarship that would suggest as early as 45 A.D. for uh, Matthew and you look at early church history, you know, the people who lived and who were a generation or two away from these events, and they say Matthew's the first one, which is a lot longer and a lot more complex and has a lot more than Mark. We'll say that's how you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because that takes away, it's not really four accounts, it's just one in these guys. That's, that's why there's some differences, and that's why they, 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 that some of them are wrong because they're just remembering wrong, and that kind of, they're just pulling from each other, that kind of stuff. When you look at all this and you hear all these things, is there an answer? And first, again, going back to the initial ideas their ideas are that supernatural events do not occur. It's during this enlightenment, rationalism, uh, scientism. Do you know what scientism is? It means that the only way we can know truth, it's the belief that the only way we can know truth is through what we can touch, taste, smell, hear. What's the fifth one? Say it again. Well, touch, taste, smell, hear. There you go. See, the one thing I can't do. Um, and you have, uh, that's the only way you can know truth. I asked all of you at the beginning, I said, is there such thing as a four-sided triangle? No. And you don't need to see all the triangles to find out there's not. You don't need to touch or taste. Scientism is this, again, this very naturalistic belief that it's only natural things. Remember that. But when we ask the question, is there an answer? JEDP from the documentary hypothesis, these documents that they say this is how they initially got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's never been a single ounce of historical documentation on these documents, which is fascinating to have an entire theory focused around something that doesn't exist. Not just that it doesn't exist, but there's not even a trail that would lead back to them. That maybe they existed at one point, but they were destroyed. No. There's not even a trail going back to saying maybe it could go this way or this way or this way. Never found in history. And you have an entire 
belief system based on four documents that a guy made up. That doesn't sound very rational. The Isaiah separated books that basically are supposed to have three different Isaiahs don't exist. In fact, what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Do you remember, you know, people hearing about the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, they found a copy of, of uh, Isaiah. And what was really amazing about the Dead Sea Scrolls, up until that point that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, was it 1850s, 1950s? 1950s. 1940s, late 1940s. Up until that time, our nearest copy of uh, the book of Isaiah was a thousand years later. And they found one that was a thousand years closer in time. And they said, all right, we've got it now. We're going to show how it's these different authors and how it doesn't make... And, and we're going to show all the errors that take place. And the only thing was a couple of obvious scribal errors where they put too many letters or left one out. It was all the same. And at the bottom of chapter 43, chapter 44, near the bottom of the page, they had the next chapter and just went straight into it as if there was no break. There is no document that exists that would show or point to three or two different authors. And that supposed Q document, guess why it's called Q? Because there's not been one that's found. The supposed idea of here's the other document that the gospel writers must have needed, haven't found it. Haven't found it. All of these theories are based on assumption only. They'll talk about language and say, well, he couldn't have because he wouldn't have used this language. Well, how do you know being, you know, 2,000 plus years, 3,000 plus years beyond time, and you're saying that this man wouldn't have known different words? Well, it couldn't have happened. Why? It goes back to the assumptions that they make. That it cannot be supernatural. You know what that tells me? That if you just look at it at face value, it certainly reads, it certainly reads as if it were supernaturally written. Because of the things that take place like predictive prophecy because of the accuracy of those prophecies calling a king by name because of the harmony it is beyond mere human invention but they can't have that because they are unwilling to acknowledge the possibility that God exists. On the back of your paper, 
I've got just a couple of ideas on responding to those three and really all these anti-supernatural ideas. Again, remembering those three, those, 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 those bases, their anti-supernaturalism, their rationalism and evolutionism. Those three come together to create a terrible storm of a closed mind. Number two, recognize that these are highly intricate stories that these guys are saying with no historical evidence. Number three, humbly admit that we don't know everything and be willing to go where the evidence goes. You know, the church being the pillar and the ground of truth, you realize we're the only people on the face of the earth that don't have to fear truth? Only people on the face of the earth that don't have to fear truth. And truth ought to be safe in the church. Research. Look for helpful tools that discuss those ideas. You know, the Apologetics Press Bible that's become really popular in a very simple way. They'll walk you through those ideas and go into some of those weeds and stuff and, and walk you through those ideas. Christian Courier, another great brother, uh, brotherhood resource. World Video Bible School, fantastic. Lacey and I used to work there. Some classic scholars on this, R.K. Harrison, Edward Young, refutes very carefully and in a very methodic manner those basic ideas. Number five, remember what the Bible teaches about its own inspiration. It would be impossible for the Bible to develop in such a unified way if it were a fragmented mismatch mismatch of random people's ideas just wouldn't work when you have the same message from beginning to end which we'll talk about that during the invitation period in just a few moments are there any questions as we close